helping people grow through coaching with Richard Boyatzis. Welcome to Coaching for Potential with Rory Rowland. Join national presenter and consultant Rory Rowland as he discusses another aspect of powerful coaching and how it transforms people to improve your organization. Welcome to Coaching for Potential with Rory Rowland. Hi, Rory. Hey, Paul. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, my friend. Well, I'm glad we were able to get together and have a discussion about coaching and how Mm -hmm. it improves organizations and people and their jobs and really everything. If you listen to this podcast, everything is better for you. (laughs) (laughs) Everything's better. And actually, you know, the viewership is or listenership is going up after the uh, pandemic. So I'm kind of excited about seeing the trend line go back up and people listening to it. So that's cool. Well, you've had a great run of wonderful interviews with coaches from around not only the U.S., but the world. Mm -hmm. And you have another one for us today. Absolutely. Richard Boyatzis is a professor at Case Western University. He's written a book called Helping Your People Grow, but he's also known for the international bestseller that he wrote with Daniel Goldman, uh, who is the emotional intelligence guru in about 2000. They just sold bazillions of copies of that book. And so to get a bestselling author on the podcast, I was incredibly geeked. Mm -hmm. And that was Primal Leadership he wrote, right? Exactly right. Thank you for sharing that. That's Mm -hmm. exactly right. So So that's his big bestseller with Daniel Goldman. He just had just a lot of great insights into the power of coaching, how to do it more effectively, how to help your people grow. And I I just loved his insights and his approach to the process. Well, excellent. Then we are in for a treat. Here is Rory speaking with Richard. Welcome, everyone, to Coaching for Potential. Today, we're with Dr. Boyatzis, and we're going to talk about his new book, Helping People Change. So, Dr. Boyatzis, welcome to Coaching for Potential. Thank you, Rory. It is my pleasure to have you here. I love your book, and you are also the international bestseller of the book Primal leadership. Am I correct on that? Yes. Yeah, that was uh, that was great. It was fun yeah. to do and fun to get, at, to get the word out around the world. So on another podcast, I heard them ask you, how do you want to be remembered? We're going to start with the end in mind, like Stephen Covey. So how do you want to be remembered uh, in your life, your career? Just we'll start with the end in mind. Well, it, it's always a very interesting question, which has become a lot more relevant as I, you know, kind of went over 60 and then went over 70. And especially with all of this uh, COVID-19 stuff, one spends a lot of time. And then having had three of my close friends die in the last six months. Um, Ouch, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah thanks. It's, uh, you start to think that it's not just an abstract question, but mm-hmm. what's my answer? I would love it if people remembered me as somebody who cared, mm. cared about them, who really did both love and have a lot of fun with my wife, Sandy, took care of, you know, our, each of our two golden retrievers uh, and enjoyed playing with them, you know, was a a thoughtful, loving dad to my son, Mm. but also somebody who had a sense of humor and somebody who at times helped people to feel free, helped people to feel liberated Mm. in being able to pursue their, their dreams and their ideas. Because even though I spend a lot of time, you know, with my several hundred academic articles and of my nine books, four of them are for practitioners, but the others are academic. Mm -hmm. So whether I'm talking to researchers and scholars or I'm talking to um, normal people, uh, everybody wants to feel as if the future has hope and they have a way to contribute to others to making society better. And especially in these times, it's very, very difficult to get there. But that's what we all aspire to. And I'd love it if people 
on the whole, remembered me as helping them get there. Ah, love it. Yeah, helping them get there is a great uh, quote. I love that. And 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 that's the key. I think of of the difference between a manager and a leader is managers. You know, they they do things, they do tasks, but leaders build relationships. They have trust, passion, compassion. You well, know, whereas you a know, manager doesn't. It, you know, that's interesting. That. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Interrupting. But it's 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 interesting you say that. I, I actually don't agree with you. Um because I don't think that's the comparison you're trying to make. Mm. Because in my research over the past fifty years of actually studying managers and people in leadership and executive positions, um, in terms of their actual performance, it turns out that the competencies that enable them to be effective are identical for effective managers and effective leaders. But very often, as you just did, people start to contrast a leader as somebody who's effective at it and a manager as somebody who's kind of boring, dull, yuck. Right. You know, and look, I'm old enough to remember in the 50s when people got excited about, we want administrators, not individual contributors. And, <laughs> you know, then by the end of the 60s and into the 70s, people said, we want managers. We don't want administrators. You know, administrators are boring and dull. And you know, then by the 80s and 90s, we want leaders, and then it was transformational leaders. You know, I don't know where it's going, but but the important issue is when you're talking about the difference between those people who enact those roles well, effectively, Mm -hmm. compared to those who aren't as effective, one thing strikes you when you actually do the research is that the number of people who are adding value is maybe the top seven to 10% of people in those jobs. 70 to 80% of the people in those jobs, including CEOs, presidents of countries, and whatever, um, all the way down to sales managers, uh, aren't adding any value at all. Most add a little bit of, I mean, of the rest, maybe 15% add a little bit of value. And then it's the top 10% of the performance distribution that really makes the magic happen. So when you study what those people are like, you discover that whether you're a branch manager or you know a remote sales manager or mm-hmm. you're in some kind of a retail setting, a store manager or a mid-level manager of marketing or you're a vice president or a CEO, the things that really make the difference in a causal study toward performance are a bunch of these capabilities that people have that these days we call competencies in terms of emotional and social and cognitive intelligence. And it's through their relationships. They do it by building really in tune, we call them resonant relationships. And it's not by happenstance. I mean, these are folks who actually either instinctively do this, which means they learned it along the way because nobody's born with this stuff. Sure. Or they actually think about the fact that, you know, they're not managing a strategic plan. They're not managing a budget. They're not managing resources. They're ma- and they're not even managing stakeholders. They're managing people who are managing people who are managing people who actually do the work. (laughs) That is true. Sorry, I might have gotten us off topic, but I just wanted to clarify that. No, that is absolutely perfect. And and that's where I was going with that is I think the people who are highly effective build those relationships and that's where you get, and that's the whole point with your book of helping people change is building those relationships, helping people dream, go forward their vision is really the impact that you can make as, as a leader, as a coach. Yeah, because look, if telling people the right answer or the thing to do or the way to be better were true, nobody would have uh, a teenager that's moody or a problem. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And we all know that quite the opposite is true. I mean, it's one of those perpetual 
things. I mean, you just, you know, hope your teenager makes it through those years without having a significant, these days, drug problem or social disease or getting themselves injured in some other activities, well-meaning right. or not. But, but the fact is that nobody likes to be pushed around. And as you were mentioning in our latest book, we took the task of saying, okay, of the last 30 years, we have 39 published longitudinal behavioral studies. We have three functional magnetic resonance imaging neuroscience studies and two hormonal studies, all pointing to the fact that the way most people go about trying to motivate others to learn or change at all levels in organizations is that we try to fix them. Mm. And now, most of the time, I've got to say, I think it's well-intended, mm -hmm. but it's executed atrociously because as soon as you try to tell somebody or fix them, how does the person feel? Let's go back to how you felt as a teenager. <laughs> Right. Let's go back to how you felt, you know, in your 40s when your in-laws are still telling you how to dress your kids. You know, I mean, you end up feeling as if you're dealing with what I sometimes call a helping bully. And again, I want to emphasize, it may be well-intended, but very often, as we demonstrated in our studies, the neurological implication of people who are focused on results, focused on goals, focused on financial metrics means that they actually suppress the neural networks that allow them to be open to new ideas or even see other people. Mm. So one of the dilemmas, because obviously we need these networks, but we also need to balance the more analytic networks, as my colleague Professor Tony Jack says, with the empathic networks if we're to try to work with people. I mean, if we're working with automatons or robots or we're just sitting uh, working by ourselves, it's fine. But even in jobs that we thought used to be individual contributor jobs, like we did a study on an international major manufacturing company where half of the uh, research engineers were in and scientists were in Europe and half were in the US, uh, which meant half were European and half were Chinese and Indian, that basically we found that the use of emotional and social intelligence behavior of the engineers, as seen by their project teammates, not self-assessment, predicted such a huge amount of their effectiveness, their perceived effectiveness as an engineer, not a manager, wow. that the unique variance, something statistical, came out as 31%. Now, you know, academics drool over something that's 2 or 3% unique variance. You get 31%, you're in, oh my God, territory. But that's that's because there's nothing in life these days that is an individual activity. It's all a team sport. Right. Which again, brings us back to what are your relationships like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, it's such a powerful concept. So I'm going to go back to a, a brand new supervisor. First month on the job, they read your book. What should they learn about their employees? What questions should they ask? What should their coaching discussions sound like? Well, First, I would say that the person who is stepping into any management job at any level, project team leader, divisional uh, head, plant manager, CEO, should make sure that in their mind, they appreciate the fact that they are responsible for certain output, certain mm -hmm. productivity, but they're also responsible, not just for the development of the financial and intellectual capital, but also the human capital. That at the end of any performance period, the human capital should be greater than it was at the beginning. That means that they try to complement the culture they're building of performance or results orientation with another culture of development. 
And mm-hmm. I say complement because you can't do both at the same time. We now know neurologically why we can't, but we know that. So what you have to do in these roles is be able to go back and forth. In a sense, you toggle or cycle back and forth. So now you're coming into a new role. You want to understand each of the people working for you. Uh, The first job is you have to, depending if you come from within the organization, then you know the products, services, clients, customers, Mm -hmm. patients, whatever. But if you don't, you have to spend some time getting to know that. Mm -hmm. And that's the number one priority. Mm -hmm. Uh, So early on, I think it's a lot of listening. But to understand the people, I think you start by saying, okay, have a conversation out of the office. Go to lunch and give it an hour and a half. Go to a nice, decent restaurant where you can sit down. Well, these days, that's a little weird. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, let's sure. This is post-COVID-19, we have the vaccine. We're all getting back to normal. Go to a nice lunch. Go out to dinner. But give yourself a good hour and a half or more. So the person doesn't feel rushed Mm -hmm. because when you are going to get to know them, you want to get to know them, not in terms of their resume. You've probably read their resume Mm -hmm. and the resume summarizes where you've been and kind of what things you've accomplished. If you want to get to know somebody, you have to get to know them at a more emotional level, which means what better place than to start about what their dreams are You know, what would, what do they want out of life? Mm-hmm. which includes work, but is bigger than that. What are their, do they have a family? What are their, what's their family like? Do they have hobbies or interests or things they get a kick out of doing? What are those like? So I think the first issue is get to know the person and do it at a level that's below the usual, oh, well, I grew up in Columbus, you know, and I was in the 4-H club and, mm-hmm. you know, then I went to Ohio State. That's actually the boring stuff. Right. So it seems a little weird mm-hmm. uh, and very often, if you're new to the job and people don't know you, <clears throat> then you can't go into that conversation without assuming that it's going to be mutual. Mm. So the reason you need the hour and a half or two hours is you're going to be sharing some of your dreams, some mm. of your life, some of what in you, you know, engages you and excites you. I agree. And just building that relationship at a very, very basic level. I love that. So what are your favorite coaching questions that you like to teach folks to ask? Um, This is amazing because at first it's going to seem counterintuitive until you practice. And Mm -hmm. once you practice with this thing, you realize how it's like opening a fire hose. You know, it's just amazing how energizing it is for most people. Mm -hmm. By far, my favorite question is, If your life were absolutely perfect, were ideal 10 to 15 years from now, what would it be like? Hmm. And I asked them to paint me a picture. You know, where are you living? If you're living with someone with whom, you know, what are you doing? How are you spending your time? If work is relevant, what kind of work are you doing? I I really want to get the whole picture, almost like I could draft a script for Hmm. a screenplay. Um, sometimes if people have a little bit of difficulty getting there, especially if, uh, they have come from a somewhat, um, uh, beleaguered past, whether they've experienced, um, oppression because mm-hmm. of, uh, race or gender or social class or whatever, sure. or if they've, you know, just never had anybody who encouraged them to dream. So sometimes then people are kind of taken aback by that. So then I shift to a more playful version of that, which is you just won 50 million in the lottery after tax. 
<laughs> after tax, you know, so that if you invested it in a portfolio, a reasonable portfolio of mutual funds, you know, at a place like Vanguard. Sure. I am not an employee of Vanguard and I don't own stocks. So I'm not uh, sponsoring that, but, but a place like that, you know, sure. you're going to kick off two and a half million a year in income. That's right. a lot of money. Mm-hmm. How does your work or life change? Yeah. Um, and very often people can relate to that. And then I move it back into the dream question. A second major theme is to ask people who helped you the most in your life become who you are or get to where you are. Mm. And this is very important because I asked who helped you, not who influenced you or who are role models or who mentored you, because those actually stimulate very often a more comparative evaluation mode, put you in the wrong part of your brain. Mm. But when you say who helped you, you're pulling for gratitude, which is the core emotion of compassion, of caring. You know, to become who you are, get to where you are. And I ask in your whole life, you know, so usually people start with a particular parent or grandparent. Uh, Sometimes there'll be a teacher, sometimes an early manager, seldom as a later manager, but occasionally, sometimes as partner or spouse. Um, But but that, it brings out, both of these major themes of questions, whether it's stimulating hope through your personal dream or compassion, what it ends up doing is um, stimulates uh, uh, both a hormonal system and a neural network and an emotional thing that we, I call a positive emotional attractor, in which a person is more open to new ideas and other people, Mm -hmm. which means things you might talk about. Uh, so I, I would say those those are th- those are three questions, but it's in two blocks. Yeah, I love them. I just think they're absolutely terrific questions. I did a podcast here uh, about probably five episodes ago, and I just named it uh, "Coaching the Hopes, Wishes, Dreams, and Aspirations of Your Employees." Good. You know, you got to find that out. And and really, it was because I had read your book, and I was personally propelled by that theory, that that philosophy. But to have your scientific data to support that right. uh, really helps me now go to managers and say, there's data to support this. Well, and, and the example, I remember in the mid nineties when we were really starting to work this heavily in man- in MBA programs and graduate programs, and then a lot of the speeches I was giving to executives around the world, um, this is even before the uh, Primal Leadership book came out in 2002. But uh, I remember having a lot of executives be able to say to me, uh, not be able to, but actually ask me the question, wait a minute, wait a minute, this sounds really weird. Suppose they tell me that their dream is to not be working in our organization. (laughs) My answer was, then they aren't now. Right. And what we know is pre-COVID-19, 83% of the people with full-time jobs in Europe did not feel engaged in their work. Mm. 76% of the people with full-time jobs in the US did not feel engaged in their work. 81% in Japan. That means globally, 80, about 80% of the people who come into work aren't bringing their game. Right. They aren't excited about it. So mm. how the hell do you think you're ever going to get them to want to use their talent, right. to be creative, to even push the limits? on maximizing performance. It's just not going to happen. So this motivation crisis means that we have to find a different way to get people to link to us and the nature of the work. Mm -hmm. And you didn't ask this question just now, but in a prior conversation, you and I talked about this. Mm -hmm. And very often when you look at whether it's teams or divisions or whole organizations, the key is not in the goals. And Honestly, except bankers, nobody gets excited about strategic plans. The key <laughs> is in... But we do. Yeah, bankers do. Yeah, that's right. Um, the key is in the sense of purpose or the shared vision. Uh, what does this organization exist for? And oddly enough, when you 
pursue this. And I've done it with over the past 30, 40 years with uh, a lot of organizations, a lot around the world, including a lot of investment banks, and nobody identifies their purpose as being making money. Right. You know, it's always serving a customer or innovating or helping society or uh, various things like that. But anyway, mm-hmm. sorry, I can go on and on and on. So let me pause and let you ask another question. <laughs> no worries. I love that. I love that question. Um, so, you've, and you almost alluded to this a little bit here, but you've got an employee, they, you ask them the dream question, and they say, I want your job. And so, uh, how should a manager respond to that? What should be their, their response? Well, first, I think it's worth a really good smile and say, I want to help you get there. Mm. Uh, because, look, I mean, unless you're really scared, there is no way that you're going to want to stay in your current role more right. than five or we know seven years because, you know, there's this whole five to seven year cycle of boredom. Um, So you want to move somewhere. Mm -hmm. And very often it's hard. One of the things that keeps people stuck in their jobs, if there's nobody that they're confident can replace them. I I mean, it's, it's an odd twist, but once you get into management, you start feeling responsible and that degree of responsibility, this happens to CEOs the most, and I, I spent a lot of time with family businesses, even in small and family businesses, this is a really amazing challenge. But if you don't feel like there's somebody ready to take your job, you're not free to explore, fantasize, or think about what other jobs in the organization you might want or how you might want to leave and do something else. Yeah, that's so, exactly right. So it's an issue of tuning into that, but I would never accept that answer at face value mm. because there are a lot of people in this life who think that they spend a lot of time figuring out what you want them to say. Mm. And so what you have to do is figure out whether or not that's bull or that's them trying to suck up to you or it's really what they want. Right. Um, if it is really what they want, part of your job should be to help them figure out how to make it happen. I agree completely. I was met by a, an HR professional one day at a conference and I spoke and she came up to me and she said, we've got this brand new teller. He's 19 years old. He's really bright and he wants to put together a database so we can access information more quickly. And here he is just a teller. And so he went to this, uh, he asked his manager and the manager ran it up to the CEO and the CEO goes, no, we're only going to teach tellers, you know, tasks that we think that are teller related. And so the young man left and I have no idea what happened to him, but they just lost such a great opportunity of someone who's inquisitive and said, how can we make things better? How can I improve the organization? And they let him go because they just had this mindset that, nope, you got it. We only train you for what you are. I remember when we were working with a number of banks on the retail side in the 70s, actually in 80s, in my research consulting company before I became a professor. And you know, one of the common observations was that the turnover rate of tellers was similar to the turnover rate of retail salespeople, which, you know, in those days was around 48%. Sure. And, you know, you try running um, a bank or you tr- a branch office, or you try running a retail store, whether it's a footlocker or a supermarket with 48% turnover. I mean, you're spending all of your time interviewing, hiring, cajoling, training people. Um, and that's why even in the latest um, surveys from McKinsey, and I was talking to some colleagues there uh, just the other day and another survey I just saw of top executives that except for the COVID-19, which is a serious and a big blip, but but except for this um, uh, disorientation that will end, the major factor most people are going to have is how to attract and retain key people. Right. So all of a sudden you realize this person was looking for something for growth and development. I, I remember, and I think I reported this in one of our books, there was a survey of 1800 MBA graduates 
several years after they had graduated in Europe. And they wanted to know why did they choose the company that they chose to work for and that they are continuing to work for now. Not the first one after school, but the one now. And of all of the reasons they gave, 1,800 folks, so there means they're around 30, 32. The compensation package, salary benefits, was the seventh. Wow. Top six were opportunities to grow, opportunities to develop, the chance to try something new, a lot of novelty and development. Mm, I agree. I had a branch manager one time. She just took over a branch. She'd been working with me for a couple of years on coaching. She had an employee that walked in and said, hey, I just want to let you know I'm leaving. And she goes, I just came over. I just came here. I I can't have you leave. She goes, and just absolutely without even thinking about it, and it wasn't anything I taught her, she just goes, I'll grant you five wishes. What five wishes do you want to stay here? And none of it was more vacation. None of it was more money. It was, I want to learn this. I want to get this. I want to understand this. I want to get trained on this. That's exactly right. And I think that was exactly the kind of thing that most people need to really understand. Because by saying that, that branch manager captured the attention and motivation of that person. Mm -hmm. And they were going to get a lot more out of that person in terms of performance and creativity and commitment than anybody else. I'm glad you mentioned that because you inspired the follow-up. You know, as the Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story, about a year and a half later, she overheard that teller was still there, still at the credit and you know, still working with her, doing a great job. They had some brand new employees coming in and they were asking her and the manager was out of you know, she was an earshot, but she was out of sight. Uh, the young folks asked her, what do you like about working here? And she goes, people listen here. If you, Ooh, nice. they listen here, they make, you will be heard here. I feel welcome here. I feel part of the team. And I just think that's uh, so great. So yeah, it's a great client. I still work with them. I love working with them and their management team has just done a great job with this well, concept. Huge. This, this is a full circle back to how we opened this conversation that when you're managing others, it's really a relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I was just saying this in um, quote, an endorsement for a a friend's book, that leadership is a relationship. I mean, unless you have people interested in wanting to follow you, you don't, you're not in a leader. And just because people report to you doesn't mean they're even interested in following you. And as I used to say, coming out of the restaurant business, you don't know if they're spitting in your coffee before they bring it to you. <laughs> so, so when you start to grasp that it's really a relationship, you start to realize that the thing that is at the heart of it, yes, of course you have performance targets. Of course you have to kind of figure out how to do more, get more, accomplish more, innovate more. Right. But all of that is going to come from people's hearts and minds and their energy levels. And it's not fluff. We have plenty of now data, both in terms of uh, management data, but also in terms of the, um, the neuroscience and hormonal issues that people really do get excited and commit their talent and do more, deliver more when they have better relationships. I mean, one of my uh, former doctoral students who was an executive in marketing and the high-tech firms in San Francisco, Silicon Valley rather, ended up doing her thesis on what predicts innovation uh, in high-tech firms. And she was able to track in a very, very large sample that not only was the emotional and social intelligence 
as demonstrated in their behavior, not self-assessment again, of the, of the executives predictive of more product innovation, more process innovation, more product and process improvement, and all sorts of other market share predictors, but also that the quality of their relationships mediated or transformed that. So you start out with an executive that is able to, to demonstrate emotional and social intelligence behavior, but that has to go through their creating of more um, caring, exciting relationships to emerge as the new products and innovation. So if you don't have the emotional and social intelligence, you know, you're up the creek without a paddle. Right. Uh, if you have it and you're using it, but you're not forming good relationships, you're also not going to get the desired results. So it's a combination of things, but it comes back to the relationships. Uh, I agree completely. It's just, and it goes back to all the things that you teach in emotional intelligence and they're just so important. So the last question I'm going to ask you as we're wrapping up here is, I asked this to a group of branch managers today, who's on their board of directors. We just had an incredibly robust discussion about it. And it was just an absolutely terrific discussion and, and very deep. Matter of fact, I did a summary of it and sent it to the CEO and said, your folks said these things. And I just thought it was terrific. You need to see it. Um, and so they, they obviously felt good about that too, that I took the time to, you know, pat them on the back with her CEO. But I want to also ask you, so who's, were on your board of directors? Who helped you get to where you were? Well, those are two slightly different questions. So are you interested in who helped me get to where I am or become who I am? Or are you interested in who's on my current board of directors? Uh, I want to see who got you, who inspired you to get you where you are. Because that's what we're talking about. Here's people who helped you get to that vision. Okay. A bunch of folks. First, my mother, my, my parents are immigrants from Greece, and um, I grew up working class. My father was a waiter, worked seven days a week, 12 hours a day. My mother was the main intermediary and champion for me at school. And in PS 150, where I was attending elementary school in Queens, um, they tried to lead me back in kindergarten, first grade, and third grade because they thought I was cognitively slow. In 1949 and 50 and 51, if you spoke with an accent and you could read another language better than you could read English, Mm -hmm. it very often was taken as a sign of mental retardation, (laughs) not multiculturalism. Um, But every time we ran into a problem, my mother would keep me out of school for a few weeks, do what we now call homeschooling, catch me up, and Mm -hmm. send me back. Okay. And by the time I was, I don't know, 10 or 11 in fifth grade, you know, we moved out to Long Island and they tested me and found out I was really good in math and physics. And then my whole path changed. Mm. But it was my mother who basically taught me the courage. And although some of it at times was, you know, a little awkward message because, you know, the thing people remember from Big Fat Greek Wedding of Xenos, Xenos, you know, they're foreigners. My mother also taught me to not trust anybody who is from America or Northern Europe because they were out to get me. <laughs> okay. Uh, they were going to steal my ideas. They were going to take credit for my stuff. And, and, you know, a lot of times when I'd go out and play in our neighborhood, I actually did get occasionally beaten up and kids would steal my stuff. So it, it wasn't outrageously, even at that tender age. But as I started to grow up, it, it really was the confidence. And to this day, publish in academic journals requires an amazingly thick skin and persistence and courage. 
that's my mother. My father gave me a deep sense of um, caring for others, which has always been aspirational. I'm not always able to uh, do it as well as I'd like. And a real sense of humor. I mean, my father was a charming man that everyone liked, far higher percentage than ever I could ever say about me. Uh, there was a physics teacher in high school, Max Boyson, who inspired my curiosity at a level that made me become a scientist. And to this day, I would say my curiosity is probably my driving energy, source of energy. And mm. my wife, um, mm. I, I, you know, my wife is today my uh, strongest um, coach, mentor, guide, uh, source of feedback, whether I want it or not at times. <laughs> but that's a part of understanding right. it. It really is important. I mean, there's a lot that I'm not mentioning because sure. they helped me in, at some point or in some way. No, I love that. And I think that's the, the reason I asked that question is I think it's a question that managers should ask their uh, employees, their teammates to get a sense of that. I'm going to go back to uh, 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 Fred Rogers says he's got a quote that if you understand someone's story, you can't help but love them. Uh, that's why I asked that question. I want people to ask that question to their folks. They get that deep understanding of where they are, yeah. where they're from. Yeah. And see the people who made an impact on you. And I just, you know, you, you were so lucky to have a mother who uh, gave you that courage and that spine to keep going. I remember talking to Warren Bennis, who was another person who would help me at a number of critical points in my career. He, he was emeritus at uh, USC, and he had just published two years before he died his biography. And, you know, here was a guy who was a teenager that lied about his age and got into the army and ended up fighting in the Battle of the Bulge. You know, and then as a professor at MIT and did a lot of great research and writing and then a dean and then a president of university and all these kinds of things, but a major mm -hmm. leadership guru. And I said, Warren, I loved your biography because even though you structured it as times in which you did things, the real story was certain relationships at each moment in your life and career. Uh, and the people who helped you. I mean, it's a whole different way to think about your life story. That's right. Yeah, just absolutely terrific. So, Dr. Boyatzis, I am so delighted to have you on Coaching for Potential. Just, I love your book, Helping People Change. So, how can people learn more about you or the numerous books you've written? Well, I mean, around the whole issue of helping and coaching, uh, the Helping People Change book is available on Amazon. Also, we have a number of Coursera MOOCs, massive open online courses, uh, two of them, one on inspiring leadership through emotional intelligence and one on coaching that Melvin and Ellen and I did. As I understand it, Coursera still allows people to take them for free for seven days. Sure. Uh, but, you know, those are 10-minute videos, exercises, and activities. But it's a way, on the whole, to freely access that. And then, of course, if a person is interested in something more, uh, we offer a number of programs, both executive programs, where, again, assuming we're uh, in the spring past the, and we have vaccines, um, where people fly into Cleveland at Case Western Reserve and then get a chance to participate in some of the courses. Uh, or even, I mean, the age of my students in my degree courses, average age is 44. Wow. So I teach folks who fly in from different cities and countries on the whole once a month and one program it's once every three months. So there are a lot of different ways that people can learn it, you know, from reading and listening to brief videos all the way to 
multi-day courses all the way to, you know, really dive in and, and get another degree, <laughs> whether yeah, it's absolutely. a master's or a doctorate. Well, Dr. Boyatz, it's, it was so great to have you on the program, Coaching for Potential. Thrilled to have you on and to have someone of your stature and your accomplishments is just a great, I just feel terrific to have you on the program. So I got to say thank you enough. Thank you, Rory. It is my pleasure. Thank you. And that was Rory Rowland speaking with Richard Boyatzis. That was a great conversation. Thanks, Rory. Well, it is my pleasure, my friend. He, he is so incredibly knowledgeable. I mean, he's one of the gurus of the coaching world. Whenever I talk to a, another coach, they always know who Richard is because they've always read his stuff or know about him or seen him at conferences and things like that. So just to have that caliber of individual on the podcast, I'm like, wow, you know, you and I are we're developing a real podcast now. So who would have thought? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> now I'm a little nervous. I am a little nervous too. Now, if but you, uh, it's great fun. If you aren't if you aren't too nervous to mm -hmm. find out more about how coaching can help you, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, great question. They can get a hold of me at RoryRoland.com. That's R-O-R-Y-R-O-W-L-A-N-D.com. And also, if they're listening to this program today and they would like a free scholarship to coachingmanager.university. It's a 52-module online self-directed program that they can use to improve their coaching skills. And the first person that sends me an email that says, I want that, I will give them a Excellent. free scholarship to coachingmanager.university. Okay. The first email to, what's that email again? Well, they're sending an email to me, but if they just go to coachingmanager.university, there's actually an email form on that website. And uh, so just go to coachingmanager.university, go to the form, fill it in, and then send it to me. And when I get that, I will get you hooked up with a link so that you can get Coaching Manager University. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks for that offer and thanks for your conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Coaching for Potential with Rory Rowland. Join us next time for another discussion about the power of coaching. This has been a KCTK production produced by Paul Lavoda and Rory Rowland. For more information and content, visit RoryRowland.com.